Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. We are live from our Los Angeles studio. Hello. How are you? Amazing. How are you? I'm good. I have to sneeze so bad. <laughs> you. I was going to ask what's going on. Yeah. You, Can you tell you my look, face is twitching? Well, it's not twitching, but it just kind of looks like you're confused almost. Yeah, because... <laughs> but you're not focused on anything in particular. You're just like... Huh? I have a sneeze brewing. Like your your facial expression sounds like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's because... There's a sneeze, a sneeze, <laughs> sneeze brewing. There's a sneeze brewing, and I it won't come out. That's the worst feeling. Oh, it's the I hate that. And then you look like that. Nobody <laughs> knows what's going on. Yeah, because it's it just is building for too long, and then you're like, yeah. just do it already, and then it doesn't <laughs> just happen. Just get it over with. And I didn't even sneeze, but it's fine. Yeah, we're fine. We're we're in uh, allergy season for me at least, so I have been sneezing plenty. So I'll I'll take the L. Correct. <laughs> And yes, and this is how much we have to talk about at the top. <laughs> Can so, you tell we have nothing to talk about? We have nothing. Let's just jump Let's, in. Yeah, there's a story. Why, why don't I tell it? Why don't you do that? Okay, great. Jim Davidson and Mike Price were best friends and mountaineering partners. By June of 1992, the two men had been climbing together for four years. However, Jim met Mike for the first time in 1986 when they were both attending Colorado State University. They shared a similar love for the outdoors and were very like-minded, so they got along instantly. And mountaineering all over the U.S. had only brought their friendship closer. Mike had a lot of mountaineering experience, so Jim looked up to him and respected his skill on the mountain. However, on June 21st, 1992, the two men decided to tackle Mount Rainier in Washington State, one of the highest mountains in the U.S. Are you familiar? I know that mountain. You do. I've seen it. Yeah. We almost, didn't we almost try to go to Mount Rainier and then we couldn't find it? <laughs> no, that was not Mount Rainier. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm wrong. We, we tried to go on a random hike outside of Seattle, but Mount Rainier is a commitment. Okay. Yeah. I just know that there was a hike that we couldn't find and we ended up in some random little town and ended up hiking, but it just wasn't the right one. Yeah, we we were like inches away from quitting. So just, close. But could you imagine if we actually couldn't find like the, one of the highest mountains in the U.S.? That would be hilarious. <laughs> like, I just where can't, is I it? I can't find it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so they're trying to climb Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier was going to put their climbing partnership to the ultimate test. They planned to scale Liberty Ridge, and they were both very excited for the adventure, but this area of the mountain is avalanche-prone and has steep icy slopes, but one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous thing, was the possibility of falling into a crevasse. A crevasse, if you're wondering, is a deep crack that forms in a glacier or ice sheet that can be a few inches across to over 40 feet wide. And that's just wide, not deep. They go real deep. And so when I learned about this story and was doing research on it, I kept hearing people say the word crevasse. And I thought that they were so silly because obviously it's crevice. But it turns out that crevasse is actually the correct term for this type of like 
crack in a mountain. So a crevasse is a very big, deep crack, especially a chasm in a glacier or the Earth's surface. A crevice is a small crack in something that forms an opening into the thing's surface. So a crevice is basically a much smaller version of a crevasse. Oh. What could be confusing about that? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I just thought that the word crevasse was very silly. So uh, It's quite fun to say. It is. And actually, when I was listening to Jim give interviews about this story, he kept saying crevasse. So I guess there's a little bit of variation there. We could either say crevasse or we could say crevasse. We're going to see what happens. We'll see. We'll just see we'll what just, happens. We'll see what and feels honestly, right. Honestly, when you say crevasse, I feel like you're holding a very fancy glass of wine. Right? <laughs> this is crevasse. It's crevasse. Or like a vase, right? you know, like a, a, a like a very good um, crystal vase. Mm. On the third morning of their trek up, they were on the last leg of their journey up to the 14,000 foot summit. For Jim, this was going to be his toughest challenge yet. Throughout their climb, the two men were attached by a cord, which definitely put Jim's mind at ease, because if anything went wrong, he would be attached to a much more experienced climber, which is definitely the way you want to be. You know, you want to be attached to the good guy. So on a few occasions, Jim wanted to give up. They would be scaling a wall of ice, and he would look up and see how steep their climb was and get scared, and that, coupled with the overexhaustion he was feeling, meant that he was definitely pushing himself to his limit. But through it all, Mike was there to gently encourage him and help him figure out what to do next. And that encouragement was what he needed to keep going. And because of that, they made it to the summit. Hell yeah. Love that. After reaching their destination, taking in the view, and resting up a bit, it was time for them to head back home to their families. But they had to make a bit of a tricky decision. The most standard descent routes down the mountain are on the south side, which would have been great for them, but it would have put them on the opposite side of the mountain from where their car was. So they decided instead they would take the much shorter northeastern route, that way they would end up where they needed to. It was 9.30 a.m. when they began their descent, and it would be a pretty straightforward eight-hour descent back to base. But although they were on their way down, they still needed to stay very alert and ready for anything. The landscape underneath the snow was a minefield of different cracks and gullies, and if they weren't careful, they could literally be swallowed up by the mountain. All of the glaciers on Mount Rainier have crevasses in the ice. Sometimes they're open and you can see them with your naked eye, and other times they're hidden under a thick layer of snow. So one wrong step and you can be in real big trouble. And as the day goes on, the risk only grows because the sun softens the snow and weakens the ice, so the entire hike becomes much more unstable. But again, that's when being tethered to your partner comes in handy, because if you do fall down into a crevasse, then your climbing partner can hopefully use their body weight to stop you and get you back out. Hopefully. Right. That's the hope. How far is their rope? Uh, their rope was somewhere around like 60 feet. It's a decent amount of rope. It was. Yeah, it's a lot of rope. I don't know if they were like completely 60 feet apart the entire time. I don't think they were, but they do have that much rope. They also had ice axes that they could use to measure the depth of the snow in their path. And they also like ice axes were used for like climbing up 
ice walls pretty much so they're climbing tools but also on their descent they can use them to like poke at the snow to make sure that the ground is stable by 10:30 a.m they realized that the route they had chosen was being hit by the full heat of the sun they felt very hot as they climbed down and they could feel that the snow beneath their feet was weakening very fast which was a problem because at first, you know, when the ice is, when the snow is really cold and it's like got a layer of ice, they're kind of walking just on top of the snow. It's really easy to walk. But as the snow melts it, their boots were going deeper and deeper into the snow. So it's taking more energy and the ground is becoming a lot more unstable. So they needed to take things really slowly. And as they trekked on with Jim in front and Mike behind, Jim was in charge of poking at the snow to make sure they didn't go straight into a crevasse. (laughs) And soon he felt something was off. After taking a few steps forward, his boot sunk into the snow completely. He had come up on a hidden crack in the snow. However, Mike was able to pull him back before he lost his footing and went straight down. Jim called back that there was a large crevasse that he had come upon and they couldn't continue going forward, so they decided their best bet was to go left and hopefully go around it. That was a pretty big wake-up call for Jim because he was starting to realize that there was danger all around him. As they went on, he continued probing the ground with the ice axe and it did feel solid. But as he took another step, again, he went up to his ankle in the snow. And after poking around the ground in front of him again and feeling what he thought was solid ground, he took another step forward. However, this time he immediately sank completely into the snow and smashed his face on the ground as he went down. He had fallen into another huge gap and this time he had realized he wasn't going to be able to stop himself from completely falling in. He was scrambling to try and dig his axe into the ice to stop himself, but it wasn't holding which meant that the only thing holding Jim up was the rope tied to Mike. As he fell, he screamed to Mike, falling, so Mike could drop to the ground and use his body weight to keep them stable. But Mike couldn't get a hold of the ground either, because it was really hot and the snow was, you know, not as solid. And even though he did drop his body to the ground, he was being pulled forward and toward this opening in the earth with Jim, who had already fallen into this hole. Jim was dangling by the rope attached to Mike. And as he fell further and further down, he was completely panicking and flailing his arms and legs around. He actually had enough time to think about what was happening and what could happen if Mike didn't get a hold of the ground. He was falling for like quite some time. Yeah, what, 60 feet? Uh, Well, we're going to... We're going to talk about how deep he fell. So this was a huge hole in the earth. Not only was it dark in there, but it was deep. And if Mike fell too, they would almost certainly fall to their death. Although this terrible thing was happening, he still had faith that Mike would stop them any second. But as Jim continued falling down, he knew that Mike must have only had a few more feet left to catch them or they were both going in. He even thought to himself as he was going down, okay, I'm at 10 feet in, 20 feet, and by 40 feet, he thought Mike probably should have stopped their falling by that point. As Jim desperately flailed around, he tried to dig his ice axe into the walls as he fell, but that backfired when the nylon rope keeping the axe in his hand and like around his wrist 
came off and flew away from him, so he lost his ice axe. And he reached out to touch the wall as he was falling, and by the high-pitched sound of his glove against the ice as he fell, he knew that he was moving very quickly. And he, he thought all of this in, like, a matter of probably five seconds, maybe. Yeah. Yes, all of this is happening very, very fast. Oh, my God. I, I just picturing the sound of his glove going down the ice wall and the, like the loud almost like hiss or scream of like the glove against the ice is a visual that he really painted well he was like yeah the scream of the glove going down it was like that fast wow by the time he thought that he was 50 feet deep into the crevasse he knew that they were in very big trouble because there wasn't an unlimited amount of rope between the men so at any second mike would be reaching the edge himself The next feeling was confusing for Jim because he felt a sharp tug on the cord, followed by the feeling of it going slack. He didn't fully grasp what was happening in the moment, but that was the last feeling he wanted to experience because that meant that the two men were now free-falling into the hole, and they had no idea how deep it was. Because basically when Mike reached the edge of the hole, he like, had one last chance to grab on so the cord like caught and then he fell in so then it went slack so then they were both falling in so they're both falling in yes they're both actively falling into the hole when jim did realize what was happening there was nothing but helplessness because there was nothing they could do the men fell 80 feet down into this hole before they hit the ground and the impact of their fall brought on a small avalanche So after the men hit the ground, they were also buried in snow. Can you imagine that? Falling for that long and then you have the impact of the ground and then you're covered in snow immediately. I mean, it's just... There isn't much worse that I can imagine than that. Yeah, and it's probably pitch black. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they're so deep down there. I'm trying to visualize what 80 feet is. It's big. It's a long way down. Yes. You might be going... I'm just wondering at what point you're going as fast as you're going to go. I imagine it's pretty close. Yeah, so for Jim, he was slowed down a bit by Mike trying to grab onto like the snow and the ice above ground. Yeah. But but Mike fell all the way down without anything slowing him down. I hate the feeling of falling anyway. Oh, yeah. But I, geez, I mean, life flashed before your eyes, but... The hang time is just, I don't know, it gives me goosebumps because it's just so far. Mm -hmm. When Jim realized that he had survived the fall, he was completely stunned. As he lay there, he felt the pressure of the snow on top of his body and couldn't believe that he had survived that fall, but now he was buried alive. He only had a tiny pocket of air around his face, so he could still breathe, but he couldn't move. And if he stayed like that, he would suffocate in only a matter of minutes. He said the fear was surging out of him because at that point, he didn't think that he'd be able to get out of the snow. And he thought about the fact that all he could do was lay there and wait for the end of his life. In desperation, he focused every bit of physical and mental power he had to just his right hand. And he pushed with all of his strength in just one spot in the snow with his hand, and he was thankfully able to break through the snow. 
Through panicked breaths, he was able to clear the snow away from his face and half of his chest, but he was still mostly buried because when he fell, he landed on his side and his right side was up. So he was able to like use his right arm to break out of the snow and then clear some of it away from his face, but almost all of his body was still buried. And it was like thick, wet snow, you know, like packing snow. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's been melting all day. Right. He had no idea where Mike was. So he called out to him. So he called out to him and told him to answer if he could hear Jim. And through the snow, somewhere nearby, he heard a muffled groan. So he knew at that point Mike was still alive, but he sounded really hurt. The difference there was Jim's fall was slowed down significantly since he was still tethered to Mike as he was trying to stop the fall. So he only had to free fall from about 50 feet down. Mike had to endure the entire force of the 80-foot drop. And as the seconds passed, Jim said he heard as Mike's breath got more and more labored. Still buried, there wasn't much he could do other than desperately dig at the snow faster with his one hand, all the time begging Mike to say something. Until he finally heard Mike exhale, and then he didn't inhale again. Jim didn't want to believe that this was the case. He thought to himself that he must have just missed the sound of his inhale and he kept digging because at this point he had freed himself. So he was just trying to dig Mike out. And finally, he managed to dig Mike out as well. And he saw Mike's body in front of him, but still he couldn't quite grasp the reality of the situation. He desperately tried performing CPR, but unfortunately Mike was already gone. When Jim didn't get any response from Mike, huge amounts of fear bubbled up inside of him. His hands started to shake along with the rest of his body as it sunk in that he had just lost his closest friend and now he was all alone trapped down there. Jim stood up and started screaming as loud as he could up and hopefully out of the crack in the earth. And as he screamed, he said he could hear the fear in his own voice. It almost shocked him how scared he sounded, but it, that was how he was feeling. After screaming for hours, Jim had to accept that he was way too far down to be heard, and there wasn't anyone else up there to hear him in the first place. He had also reached a very hopeless state because he had resigned to the fact that no one was ever going to find them. No one would even know that they were missing for at least another 18 hours, but by nighttime, the temperatures would drop to a deadly negative 40 degrees. Oh my god. Yeah. Jim, Fahrenheit? I don't think it matters. I think negative 40 is Fahrenheit oh, and Celsius. Yeah. We've been over this. Yes, we have. I mean, fuck either way. Yeah. You know? Negative 40 is just, it'll kill you if you're exposed. He knew that if he was still stuck in there when it got dark, he would not survive the night. Which is when it hit him that if he had any chance of getting out of there, he was going to have to do it himself. And he was going to have to do it right now. By that time, it was already around 11.30 a.m., which meant that he only had a couple of hours to climb an 80-foot sheer cliff, or he would freeze to death. And on top of that, it was the most difficult terrain he had ever seen. The walls went straight up, and then, as it got higher, they started to taper inwards, and then to an overhang. Yeah, so as you got higher, your body would basically feel like it was falling backwards and you would have to use literally all of your strength to keep yourself from falling off of the wall. Scary stuff. 
if you can get that far. Yeah, exactly. 80 feet up, that's a really big climb. And as we know, Mike is the more experienced climber. Jim is pretty new. He's been mountaineering for some time under Mike's, like, guidance, but he still is very much not as experienced. And he was doubting his own ability to begin with because, I mean, even just getting up to the summit, he was having trouble finding the motivation to keep going. It was only because Mike was like, you got it. that he was able to like keep going. So now he's alone and he's like, I can't do this, but he had to. Yeah, I mean, you have no other choice. It's now or never. Exactly. Without even thinking, Jim said out loud, oh, Mike, we're in big, big trouble. He thought to himself that there was no way he could climb that. Maybe the best climber in the world could, but he was not a very good climber and had very little faith in his ability. So he sat back down in the snow once again, and as he sat there, he resigned himself to his fate. But then he thought about how it was a miracle that he was even alive at all. Because from a fall like that, it was very possible that it was going to kill him. Not only that, but he had Mike to thank for his survival, because if he fell at full force like Mike did, he most likely wouldn't have survived either. So because of that, Jim knew that he had to at least attempt to climb out of there. If he didn't, then Mike's death would have been completely for nothing. Jim imagined Mike saying to him, start climbing, you can do this. So he got up once again, but as he started to move, he made an alarming discovery. He had a very intense pain in his left shoulder, and at the same time he discovered this pain in his shoulder, a lot of blood came out of his mouth. So he coughed up blood. And that really scared him, because he didn't know what that meant. He didn't know if he had some kind of internal injury or what was going on. And if we remember, Jim dropped one of his ice axes in the fall. And if he didn't find it down there, then he was never going to make it out. So he started looking around the snow because he's like, okay, it has to be down here somewhere. And as he searched, he made another incredibly disturbing discovery. Using his headlamp, Jim saw that he and Mike had actually landed on a snow bridge. So they weren't even at the deepest part of this crevasse. When he peered over the edge of this little piece of snow that they happened to land on, he could only see darkness. There was basically nothingness. Like they were on this tiny little piece of ice and everything else was just like deep, dark, nothing. Whoa, how fucking lucky, but also they still fell, but Right. But it could have been was so the... much worse. <laughs> yeah, how big was the little piece of snow? The snow bridge? I mean it was it was big enough for the two of them, but that's pretty much it. Everything else was darkness. And before he had made this discovery, I mean, it was really dark down there to begin with. So it's not like he was, he noticed that there just wasn't ground next to him. But as he was like searching for this axe, he realized that there was actually like just, it just kept going down. Wow. He wanted so desperately to see the bottom, but he just couldn't. All right. So his, he's not finding his axe. Okay. No. So he did find his axe, but I'll, I'm going to tell you what... (laughs) where the axe is. When he looked to his left, he saw that the crevasse extended about 100 feet. And then to the right, he estimated somewhere around 200 feet. So this crack in the earth was massive. 
and he hoped that he could find another exit to either side of him. But after taking in how truly massive this space was, it was clear that the only way out was up. And as he was looking over the edge of this piece of snow they were on, he saw about 10 feet below them was his ice axe. It was wedged between the walls of the crevasse perpendicular to the walls because the walls started to taper inwards as it got deeper and deeper. So it like got stuck in between the two walls. It's almost like they're holding it for him. Yes. Wow. Absolutely zero part of him wanted to go deeper into this crack. He thought about how he may not even be able to get back up to the piece of snow they were on, let alone to the top of it. But the more he thought about it, the more it seemed like it was his only option. Without the ice axe, he couldn't do anything. So if he wanted any hope of climbing out, he had to go down and get it. So he hooked up his climbing gear to the wall of the crack and slowly began lowering himself down, digging his spiked shoes into the wall to climb down. And as he made it lower, he had to be extremely careful because one wrong step could dislodge the ice axe, sending it down God only knows how deep. So he had to be really careful by like bending down and picking it up very slowly. Slowly but surely, he did grab the axe and let out a little sigh of relief as he put it back on his climbing belt. Once again, he made it back up to the snow bridge and he had a new sense of confidence because it felt like for the first time he was fighting back. By that point, it was around 12.30 p.m. He knew he needed to start climbing immediately because obviously the biggest obstacle was getting up to the ledge, but also once he made it out, he wasn't home free. He still had a major hike to get to any kind of safety, and if he was exposed to the harsh weather all night, he still might die of hypothermia even if he made it up to the surface. So as he prepared, he realized he was missing another key piece of equipment. In the fall, he had lost his helmet. He knew that he could use Mike's helmet, and although it felt wrong, he knew that Mike would have wanted him to utilize every piece of equipment he had. And now he had to face the most treacherous climb of his life. In the back of his head, he still had these voices of self-doubt, but at the same time, he knew that he only had six hours to escape. He decided he was going to start climbing and wouldn't stop until he either got out or until he was dead. He only had his ice axes, his spiky shoes or crampons, and screws to put in the ice to hold him up. If any of these ice screws failed or came out of the ice, he would plummet back down to his inevitable death because now he didn't have Mike to break his fall. So these ice screws, basically, like, it's exactly what it sounds like. You, like, screw it into the ice and then you clip yourself onto this ice screw and then you climb up and you have to get the ice screw out and then put it higher and clip yourself in and, like, climb up. So it's really important that these ice screws don't come out because if they failed, which happens, then he would fall. Does he only have one? He has, I believe he has like five. Okay, I'm just wondering, like, do you only have like one screw and like 
when you take it out, all you have is your shoes? No, I'm pretty sure you have like, I think you're probably clipped into like two at a time. This is coming from someone who doesn't know much about climbing. So if anyone knows and wants to let me know and I can update us later, let me know. But um, I'm pretty sure he was connected to probably two at the same time. Yeah, I would imagine you have at least one and then maybe a backup and then you're putting in a third or something. Maybe. And you're going to clip and then take it out. Yeah, basically. Some kind of staggered yeah. way. We're not climbers, but it was important that these ice crews didn't fail because he would be sent plummeting to his death. Word. So also, does he have like this big screw, like a screwdriver to put it in? No, it was like he had to use his hands to like... It was a tiny screw. Like he, it was like a little, he's just screwed it into the ice. With his hand? Yeah, yeah. His gloves, yeah. Wow. Okay. Must be sharp. <laughs> yeah. Every inch of his climb was physical and mental torture. He felt as if he had been swallowed by a monster, and now he was crawling back up its throat. And every second counted, because he was on a crunch for time. He actually kept the tether to Mike on, because it made him feel like he and Mike were still climbing partners. So if he made it out or not, he felt like they were still a team. I mean, it's eerie that he's tethered to his dead friend. Yeah, but it was kind of like a moral support thing. Yeah, I know. But I guess I'm thinking how I would feel in that situation. I feel like you have to just block it out. You can't really right. let the uh, trauma of it all, the tragedy, like really creep in. Because, like, you, obviously you know what just happened. Your friend is gone and, like, you're going to break down a little bit at least. But he also had to really majorly focus. Yeah. You got to just kind of shove it down for the time being. And I guess this was, like, his only bit of comfort he had was to keep this tether. Because without it, then he's by himself. He doesn't have a partner, you know? Right. So it makes sense. And it's sweet, honestly. Yeah. But also very sad. So by 12.45 p.m., after climbing just 20 feet, his adrenaline levels were dropping, and each step was much harder than the last. He hadn't eaten anything or had any water in many hours at that point, and the two men were exhausted from the three and a half days of alpine climbing they had already gone through. Because remember, they were coming down from the summit. So not only did they have a whole morning of like intense climbing, but they'd been doing it for three and a half days at that point. So he's beyond tired. Weak and exhausted, he felt his hope draining away. But in the back of his head, he heard a little voice telling him to keep going. And through each pull, he could see Mike in his mind's eye telling him he could do it. He also thought back to all the little pointers or words of encouragement Mike had given him along the way, and it still felt like he was kind of coaching Jim, in his mind at least. The only reason he was able to keep going was because it didn't feel like saying a goodbye yet. By 2.30 p.m., Jim had barely made it a fifth of the way up, but he felt like he had been climbing forever. By that time, with every step, conditions in the crevasse were getting worse. The afternoon sun was melting the top of the crevasse at the surface, which was pouring freezing water down onto Jim as he climbed. He was soaked all the way through, and that water would refreeze on his ropes or on his jacket. Oh my God. It's just getting so much worse. Yeah, is there any upside? I guess he's a fifth of the way up. But wait, it gets worse. So <sighs> the midday heat was also creating an even deadlier situation because huge chunks of ice started breaking away from the top and came plummeting down 60 feet toward him. 
He said the pieces that fell ranged in size from a microwave to as big as a refrigerator, some even bigger than that. The microwave was the small one. Oh my god. Isn't that ridiculous? A fridge, dude? A refrigerator-sized piece of ice plummeting down at your head. Yeah, I was going to mention the helmet, but that is not helping you with the refrigerator. <laughs> no, maybe for the microwave-sized. Maybe. But even that is like... He's still going to get a concussion. So he just dodged him or got lucky? Yeah, like he was either lucky because they flew past him or he dodged them. That's insane. That's such a big chunk of ice to just fall off. I know. Because of the heat. Yeah. Yeah, it was ridiculous. When I heard that it was refrigerator sized, at least some of them, and he, he said some were even bigger than that. Like, I, mean, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, It's probably like, what, a thousand pounds of ice? Absolutely. In one chunk? Yes, absolutely. No, no falling doubt. Falling from 80 feet up. At your head. And you're holding on to an well, ice wall. At anywhere. <laughs> well, right? sure. At anywhere. But like, you're literally clinging for dear life, exhausted onto an ice wall. And you're wet and cold. I mean, just add insult to injury. Why don't we? Like, yeah. pour salt in the wound. So as he went on, he could only hope that one wouldn't hit him and knock him off of this cliff. Because sometimes he heard them coming, but sometimes he didn't. So sometimes he was climbing and it just would go past his head. And he was like, oh my God. It didn't make any sound? Sometimes no. Oh my God. It's so eerie. I mean, what do you do, man? There's nothing you can do. Nothing. Just hope yeah don't think too hard about it because yeah, if you do you'll yeah literally hold it in instead yeah it felt at that point like the crevasse was toying with him or intentionally trying to scare him and throw him off guard with the threat of being killed at literally any moment jim decided to pick up the pace but of course there was another problem he had reached the point of the climb where the walls started to come inward at him it was getting incredibly steep and caused an immense amount of strain on his chest and arm muscles. The walls were also getting more unstable as the sun beat down. His ice screws were the only thing stopping him from plummeting to his death, but he wasn't sure that they would hold up on the melting walls. As he climbed, there was a moment where he had one hand off of his ice axe as he fiddled with his gear, and as he pulled it back to go higher, he fell backward off of the wall. He swung back, and his head hit the far wall, which was about four or five feet away from him. He hit his head really hard, and then swung upside down, and hit the back wall that he had been climbing underneath his ice screw. So he was dangling by his rope that was attached to an ice screw, but he was dangling upside down. And at that point, at like at least like 40 feet up. Ugh. I mean, after that fall, I don't know how that feels. It must have felt like the end, truly. Oh my god, that's that's death right there. How do you get back up? I don't know. You just kind of turn yourself around. You dig your ice axe back into the wall and you, you just, just on going. give it the old college try. I don't know. <laughs> but he was he was hanging from this single ice screw. And if that one failed at that point, because it's not even like he was really taking any kind of weight off of it, like his full body weight was on this one ice screw and the walls were melting and chunks of ice were falling at his head and there was water pouring down. Like, I can't imagine a worse situation. Not really. So he did manage to wiggle himself back up onto the wall. And by that point, it was around 3.30 p.m., since the walls were now tapering inward, he knew that he needed to switch to a different climbing technique. He needed to start aid climbing. 
So I didn't know what aid climbing was, but it involves hanging loops of rope from a wall screw and using them as footholds. So on Google, it gave like a six step breakdown and it says, one, place a piece of gear. Two, test the gear. Three, transfer your weight onto it. Four, clip the rope into your previous piece of gear. Five, get as high as you can. Six, repeat. I don't know if that makes sense to you climbers out there. I'm sure it does. But from what I understand, you basically make little foot loops with rope and you use them to like basically step up and pull yourself up that way. Okay. This technique is rarely, if ever, done with ice screws. Jim had certainly never done it, nor had he ever met anyone who had done it. So this was a gamble for sure. According to Jim, this type of climbing is brutally physically demanding, and he was already exhausted and still had to scale 60 feet and get over an overhang using a technique he had never done. Even worse than that, he didn't have the correct equipment for it. So he had to improvise with just a few lengths of nylon and only five ice screws. It was going to be a very awkward attempt, but it was the only thing he had. He was going to need to apply every bit of information Mike had ever taught him. Without Mike there with him, every few feet, Jim would have to climb back down to retrieve his ice screws, which cost him a lot of precious time and energy. So he basically had to keep climbing back down to his lowest screw and then climb back up and then put it higher. That way he could get a little bit higher, but then he had to keep retrieving his old ones because you can't just leave it behind. And without having a partner behind you to retrieve them for you, you have to do all the work. So it's almost like he's he's not actually climbing however high it is. He's climbing four or five times that because he has to keep going up and down. Yeah, basically. It, it probably took him double, if not triple, the amount of time it should have. Wow. And all of this with dripping water and large chunks of ice flying past his head. Yeah, let's just remind us <laughs> like, of that. Yeah, right? I feel like we have to. So now we're at 5 p.m. And after hours of grueling climbing, Jim was only within a few feet from his last big obstacle, which was going to be the most difficult. He had to get past this overhang of ice, which was basically like a ledge that he was underneath. So he had to get like over the top of it. But he still had 20 feet left to climb to even get to the overhang. We're still quite a ways away from getting out. He was on his last reserves of energy. He could feel himself moving slower and slower, and his body was coming close to a complete halt altogether. It was a terrible mixture of exhaustion, loneliness, and despair. He was starting to feel so beat up physically and emotionally, he thought it might be too much. He looked down and thought about Mike, and then started thinking about Mike's parents at home, and how all he could do was get out of there and then let them know what happened to Mike, but he wasn't coming home. It was really important to Jim to honor the people who had helped him get to where he was. Because in reality, no one would know if he just gave up and decided to end it all. But he was doing it for Mike, who taught him that you don't give up just because it's hard. He had to find the strength for one final push to the top. By that time, it was 5.45pm. As he climbed, he again coughed up blood. And this time... He saw it on the wall in front of him, and he watched it drip down for a moment until it froze where it was on the wall. And that's when he realized that that was almost a marker to show how far he had made it up the wall. 
And this became a sort of psychological game. He began playing with himself because with each step, he would spit blood on the wall again to prove to himself that although he was moving really slowly, he was, in fact, making progress. Whoa, that's where he's at mentally. He's marking his progress with blood spit. Yes. After 65 feet and hours of hell, Jim had finally made it to the overhang, which was the only thing between him and the top of the crevasse. He knew that he was close. So I want to paint a picture as clearly as I can to describe what this overhang actually was. So he's climbing up in a wall of ice and the, the wall started to taper inward at him and then got to the point where he was basically underneath a shelf of ice, almost as if he was underneath a platform. So he then had to like go completely backwards and like hold himself on a ledge and then pull himself on top of that ledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, great. And then he's still not even out of the crevasse. No, then he's that's that's just the last huge obstacle he has. He still has to then climb another like I think 20 feet above the overhang to get out. Oh my god, dude. So this, this is, is incredible. No, it's it's like one of the most incredible feats of survival I've ever heard. It's insane. So to get past this overhang and out alive, he needed to risk his life because he had climbed up as far as he could. And now the ice was curved over his head, which meant that he needed to reach up and over his head and back to secure an ice screw into the lip of this overhang and haul himself over it. If he could make it over that, then he only had 20 more feet to the top. He managed to get the screw into the lip of this ledge and had clipped his harness into that high up screw that he had to really reach for because he was basically bending backwards at this point. And if he lost any kind of balance, he would have fallen like 65 feet. But he did manage to clip his harness into that high screw and as he hung on to it, he realized that he made a huge error. He had broken a climber's golden rule. He had attached himself to the screw above by his chest instead of his waist. The chest harness then cinched in around his waist and squeezed the breath out of him as he literally dangled over 65 feet of hole that he had already climbed up. So he was fully dangling just by a rope and it was suffocating him. No. Yes. Oh my God. Not that. Yes. Have that not be the way you go. Right. So a voice in his head screamed at him that it was all over and he would die hanging from that ice screw. He was gasping for breaths and could only really get one when he would put his ice tool into the wall for a moment before he slipped and then slumped back into the sling and it would squeeze the air out of him once again. He was only able to like catch a breath for like a second every once in a while. Like this was actively suffocating him. Yeah, and it cannot be helping whatever internal bleeding he's having. No, definitely not. He had to get off that ice screw, and unless he could get one more surge of energy to do that, he only had seconds left to live, which miraculously he did. With almost everything left in him, he managed to dig his ice axe into the ledge above and pulled himself on top of the overhang. I don't know how he did it, because it feels like every 
bit of this story I'm talking about, I keep saying, with everything left in him, he did X. And at this point, it's like, he had to use all of his reserves to get himself on top of this ledge, otherwise he would suffocate himself. But now, he has to climb 20 more feet to the top of the crevasse. And then he's not even done after that. And then he's just out, which is the hardest part, but then you could freeze. I have secondhand stress. I know. Wait, so how does he get the other ice screws? Did he is this the only one that he has in the in the wall at this point? I think so. I think it was like his his last ditch attempt. He was like, "Okay, I have to put an ice screw there and I have to like dangle on it." So that's what he did. <laughs> I would shit myself. I would be so dead so fast. I would not get nearly as far if far at all. And he's never done this before. No, he hasn't done any of this at all, ever. I mean, he's he's climbed, but like the climbing technique he was using, he had never used before. And he'd obviously never climbed a terrain like this. Like this was by far the most challenging thing he had ever done. Let's keep going. So he made it on top of this ledge. And as he looked down and saw how far he had come, he realized that he was on the extreme edge of what he thought climbing could even be. Like he was impressed with himself he's like how could any climber do this like this is ridiculous and i'm living it still from where he was he only had 20 feet left to the top but he was so exhausted by what he had already done he questioned whether or not he would even have the strength to make that final stretch by that time jim only had a few minutes left of daylight which meant that the temperatures down there were dropping very fast He was desperate to get out of there as quickly as possible, and he thought about free climbing the rest of the way because he knew that he was able to free climb about 15 to 20 feet in about a minute. So by that logic, he could be out of there in just one minute of energy, which was very appealing and was kind of energizing him. But before he started, he heard Mike's voice in his head clearly saying, don't. He wasn't strong enough, and there was a very good possibility that he would slip and fall, which would end it all. He knew that he couldn't take that risk, because free climbing is just basically just climbing without the ice screws, like if you just climb all the way up. How do you even do that? It's just ice. Well, with his, like, I guess, sheer strength and like with the ice axes and his ice shoes, because his his shoes have like Picks. picks coming out. Yeah. So he was like, I could do it. But if he did it, he was risking everything. And everything in him was like, do not do that. No matter how much he wanted to and how much extra time the aid climbing would take, he knew he had to keep going the way he had been. He was extremely weak. Suddenly, the one to two pound ice axe became almost too much for him to even lift. By 6 p.m., after more than five hours and 80 grueling feet, Jim reached the surface but that wasn't it because he had to get a grip on the snow of the surface to pull himself up and out so he's still like technically in the crack and he has to like basically claw his way back onto the surface but he can't get a very good grip on the snow like mike because mike had tried the same thing because it's snow correct so the snow on the surface was very thin and mike couldn't get a hold of it when they fell in. So now Jim was experiencing that, trying to pull himself back out. 
He couldn't believe after everything he was just going to slide back in and fall all the way back down to where he started. But again, a voice in his head was screaming, do something, just lunge. So he threw himself up as forcefully as he could and dug the ice axe into the snow hard, which held and he was able to pull himself up. He could see in the snow the place where Mike had been just moments before Jim fell, and through the marks he could tell that Mike dug in as hard as he could to stop Jim's fall. So it was sheer luck that he was able to, you know, slam his ice axe into the snow as hard as possible because Mike couldn't do it either. And as he sat there, he finally untied the rope that tethered him to Mike and clipped it to the final ice screw in the snow. That way he would be able to come back and take Mike's body home. He just lay there in the snow for a moment as all the emotion he had been holding down came out. And he said out loud once, I'm alive. In that moment, his cries for help had been answered. And he saw two park rangers and some volunteers. Wow. Which is when he knew that he had been saved and help was on its way. Which is just straight up luck. <laughs> like, yeah, I thought he was going to have to hike thousands of feet down. I did too. I really didn't think that there was going to be people up there. But I guess there were rangers. And so he was saved off of the mountain by the rangers because truly, if he had to hike down, I don't know that he would have been able to do that at that point. Jim had survived with only minor injuries and Mike's body was retrieved the next day. But he had to do one final thing before he went home. The last day he and Mike had been climbing together, they talked about coming down off of the mountain and having a big steak and a cold beer. So he went into the bar and ordered two beers, one for him and one for Mike, and he sat there and drank them both. Since then, Jim has never lost his love for the mountains. He now teaches new climbers to respect the power of nature. And each year on June 21st, Jim makes a special climb to celebrate the life and times he had with Mike in the mountains. He also dedicated his book about his survival called The Ledge to Mike. And I don't really have any more information about where Jim is today, but that is the incredible story of Jim Davidson and how he made it out against all odds. Yeah. And with, I mean, I don't know how you muster that much strength to go, I don't know, just seeming how it was described to me, basically climbed... 500 feet up because he had to keep going back up and down yeah i mean i guess it was like an 80 foot wall but yes going back up and down he climbed definitely more than 80 feet yeah it's insane i mean it chokes me up how he commemorated him and that he always goes back yeah and dedicated his book to him i mean it's just such a hard thing to lose a good friend like that oh my god yeah and in, in an instant i but, can't imagine yeah it was his best friend and like climbing partner i mean they they did this like thing together this extremely intense thing that i mean that i can't really completely wrap my head around how that bonds you like being in kind of survival mode all the time with this person i could only imagine would very much bond you very close yeah. so yeah it's extremely tragic um but i think it's really beautiful that he kept the rope attached to mike on him the entire time and through everything, like, prioritized getting Mike found, you know? Yeah. Because when he finally made it out, 
like the first thing he did was unclip and like clip it to the last ice screw so that there was like a marker you know mm. so i just think that says a lot and i mean I hope that this was a clear enough story to understand because there was a lot of like explaining to do, but I mean, it's just incredible all around. So yeah, I mean, that's all I really have to say. Do you have anything else? Respect nature. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful. I don't know. Take it one step at a time. (laughs) Uh, You know, you know, you know what I mean? Listen to Jim. Yeah. But anyway, what is your good thing? My good thing this week is another golf-related Oh, event. wow. I couldn't have guessed. You know, that's what I do. Sure. It's what we're here for. Not uh, really, but it? yeah, it's what I'm here for. Okay. And this weekend, I shot the best round I've ever shot. Hell yeah. So I was really stoked about it. I shot one under. It was like a pretty easy course. It was an easier course, but I've never shot par or under par. So that's a big deal. For the people golf. who don't know anything about golf like me, it just means he did a really good, really good job. <laughs> he did really good. Yes. Love that. <laughs> you killed it. You did it. You did it. Yay. Amazing. Um, my good thing is we watched a really good movie the other day on Netflix called The Good Nurse. Oh, yeah. That was really good. If you haven't seen it, um, it uh, it's starring Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain and... Um, I don't want to give anything away. It's just, it's a really good, like, true crime, actually. It's it's based on a true story um, movie about this, like, nurse. They're both nurses, in case yeah, you couldn't tell from the story called The Good Nurse. Um, but yeah, I, I highly recommend. So if you're looking yeah. for a movie, check it out. That was a really good movie. It's an insane story. Yeah. And it's definitely not what I would have expected from a quote unquote like true crime movie. It's definitely kind of a new, it's like, it was completely new to me. Sure. Yeah. It's hard to believe that it's real, but I mean, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I'll leave it at that. No spoilers. Yeah, no, I'm, no spoilers I'm like, allowed. I'm, I'm going to go into yeah, spoilers No, no now. spoilers allowed. Anyways. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like some bonus episodes and a bit of community, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to share with us and hear and possibly hear on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast and a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.